One way in which the healthcare industry is unique is that it touches everyone. We all, at various points in our lives, interact with various providers of healthcare. But we're at a very interesting place in the evolution of that industry. On one hand, we have many amazing developments happening every day. But we also face many challenges. Forrest Faison is a retired vice admiral in the United States Navy, who served as an officer in the Medical Corps, culminating as the United States Navy's 38th Surgeon General. Since retiring from the Navy, he has served as the Senior Vice President for Research and Innovation and Chief Healthcare Strategy Officer at Cleveland State University. He truly has a unique set of top-level experiences as a healthcare and medical emergency response leader, and he joined us to talk about the future of healthcare and much more. We hope you enjoy this phenomenal conversation with Dr. Admiral and my fellow Cleveland State University colleague, Forrest Faison. Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Well, Forrest Faison, welcome to the Indigo Podcast. Thank you, Ben. It's great to be here. Yes, this is so awesome. This is, <laughs> this is, I, I've been looking forward to this ever since we prepped. I mean, that Forrest has such good stuff to say, and he's one of the people, you know, I've met some military leaders that are kind of lost in the sauce a little bit, and that is not this guy. <laughs> he, he knows what he's talking about. He's a thought leader in this space. And on top of that, he has just mounds and mounds of practical experiences in the trenches on this stuff at the strategic level, all the way to the tactical level. There couldn't be a better person. I mean, thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks, Chris. Thank you so much. It's a real privilege to be here. I'll tell you. Yeah, well, we're so excited. And what we're going to talk about here today are a few things. We're going to talk about some major trends in the future of healthcare. We're going to talk a little bit, perhaps, about managing health emergencies at a large scale. And, you know, we'll talk maybe about some of those lessons learned uh, from being the 38th Surgeon General of the U.S. Navy. So um, why don't we kind of start with this big topic? And just from your perspective, you know, being a uh, physician yourself and, you know, working all the way through to the highest levels of, um, you know, being a uh, healthcare executive, so to speak, in the, in the military and, and now continuing that. Um, in your role at Cleveland State and and, and so forth. Um, tell us a little bit about what you see about some of these major trends in the future of healthcare. I'll tell you, healthcare, American healthcare specifically, um, but really globally, um, is undergoing change on an unprecedented level that we really have not seen in generations. It's really what I call the tectonic plates of change. You know, for, for really centuries, the, the model of healthcare has been pretty stable. You know, you, you go to a facility, whether that's a hospital or a clinic when you're sick, um, you, you go, um, you know, when the doc says you can go, you get good care. Um, it's a very stable model. Th that um, is really changing. Um, these tectonic plates are shifting healthcare um, in ways that we, we have never seen before, and they're coming together all at once. So, so when you look at healthcare, you know, for years and years, like I say, healthcare was very stable. Now it has ultimately um, become a commodity. People need it, but they don't need it from a particular entity. Um, you know, healthcare is very heavily regulated in the United States, and that regulation has driven out the bad actors. So pretty much anywhere you go, you're going to get pretty decent care. So what drives healthcare choice today? Because it's not cost, because you're not paying for it, um, and it's it's convenience. 
you know, you're going to go where it's convenient for you, where it can fit into your life. And this has given rise to retail health clinics. Um, this has given rise to, you know, virtual healthcare solutions. So, so we've moved healthcare into the community driven by convenience. Um, and that, that's good. There's goodness that goes with this because it makes it easier to get healthcare. The challenge is how do you do that when uh, at a, and not have your health care get fragmented? So you get your care from one retail clinic today. Um, you go to your doc the next day, another retail clinic the day after that. None of those are connected by a common electronic health record. So what that means that you are at risk for your care to become fragmented. Tests have to be repeated. Diagnoses have to be re-explored. Ultimate costs of care go up. Um, and, and our country can't afford that right now. One out of every five dollars in the GDP is spent on health care. We need to be looking at how do we control the cost without sacrificing quality and access, not catering to convenience and allowing the cost go up in an uncontrolled manner. That's one area. The, the second area is what we just saw, the pandemics. You, you know, um, you know, pandemics have been a part of human history since antiquity. Um, but but what has changed is the speed by which they progress. So as an example, um, in, in the Middle Ages, the Black Death entered Europe um, through Italy, ports in Italy, uh, and they came from from Middle Europe, from uh, from the eastern part of Europe and the steppes of Russia uh, and trading posts there. It took five years for the Black Death to get from Italy to England. Five years. Today, you could, thanks to the miracle of air travel, you can be anywhere in the world well within the incubation period of a lethal infectious disease. So, so, so our response time, our window of opportunity to prepare and respond to that is really very short uh, and is getting shorter. So you've got that. And, and, we'll, and, I'm, and I'm sure we'll talk about pandemic lessons learned. Um, you, you've got the volume of medical knowledge. The volume of medical knowledge today is doubling every 73 days. We are rapidly approaching a point where it will be impossible for the human brain of your doctor to know everything needed to care for you. So, so driving decision support and care algorithms and best practices to the point of care is going to be important. Institute of Medicine issued a report a few years ago that to Air is Human. There are 100,000 preventable deaths every year um, because of variability in healthcare. So what's our plan for that? We don't have one. Um, and, and then finally, the health workforce. You know, as, as the baby boomers start to retire, our nation is facing a shortage of anywhere from 110 to 130,000 physicians by the end of the decade. So what's our plan for that? Um, how are we growing medical school admissions? How are we extending uh, care extenders and growing those? Um, and, and we're faced now with something that we really didn't see before, which is the rise of competing career paths. My son's a good example of this. My son is, a, is in college right now studying cybersecurity. And I said, hey, hey what, what, about a, what about a career in medicine, the family business? And he goes, Dad, why would I go through all that training and incur all that debt when I can get right out of college doing cybersecurity and make more money than you? I can't really argue with that. So who's going to carry on the mantle of healthcare into the future um, as we look at that? And, and, then, and then the last tectonic plate for America is the cost of healthcare. You know, we spend one out of every five dollars of the GDP on healthcare, but we do not have the best outcomes um, for that. Eighty percent of those dollars for you individually will be spent in the last two years of your life. Uh, and much of that will be for what, what I call diseases of choice. Th these are lifestyle diseases, obesity, diabetes from diet and, and, and lack of exercise and things like that that are very preventable. Um, 
you know, so, so, but how do we take things like virtual healthcare and lifestyle modifications um, and, and career opportunities and bring this into a coordinated plan for the health of our nation going forward? Um, that's our challenges. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought those up. And I think those are great. Those kind of tectonic plates is a great way to look at those. So let's, let's start with, let's unpack each one of those a little bit. So the first one is convenience and fragmented care. Um, one of the things when I was a kid, people used to say, oh, go see Filson. You know, he's a really good doctor. And and it wasn't, hey, if you can pass your medical boards, you've met standard, all right? As long as your bedside manner is dialed, you should be all right from a quality of care. But the difference in that is that there was a relationship with a health. I, I saw my pediatrician until he told me I couldn't see him anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And, and we don't have that anymore, right? Yeah, yeah. No, healthcare's changed today. It's driven by convenience because, because again, the uh, the underlying assumption, and it's largely true, is that quality is there. You're going to get good care um, because healthcare is so heavily regulated. The curriculums are standardized across the nation. A variety of other things. Sure, there are some centers of excellence for specific disease conditions, but for routine primary care. Healthcare is is uh, is pretty ubiquitously of high quality in the United States. So convenience is what drives this uh, today. Uh, and again, you you when you're going after healthcare because of convenience, you're not going to have that relationship. When you're seeing a different provider each time you go in, again driven by convenience, that provider is not going to get to know you. Um, and what does that mean? That provider is not going to, to have at their disposal what I consider to be very invaluable tools in, in, in the toolkit of a, of a healthcare provider, which is knowing your your um, uh, your patient and knowing when something's not right. As a pediatrician, you know most of my patients can't tell me what's wrong with them, but as I know them and as I observe them, th then I can tell when something's not right. Um, you lose that when care becomes fragmented like that. Um, and then the cost of healthcare goes up as tests get repeated. You know, um, when when you start to everybody prescribes medications and there's med med interactions um, that that impact health. All of these things are coming together where where the drive is toward convenience, but there are costs in terms of quality, in terms of outcomes, and in terms of cost. Yeah, I don't I don't think a lot of people knew this. When I was listening to the pitch for the Affordable Care Act, colloquially known as Obamacare, electronic medical records. You know, and my generation is like, why aren't they electronic? And the the mental picture we got, right? I think a lot of people in my generation did was if I break my leg skiing in Colorado, they can get my medical records from Alabama. But they can't because all these medical people are trying to find patients with money and make them sticky to their system, no matter what they have to do. So that impacts it. And then on top of that, you know, oh, I got a sore throat. I'll just go to a doc in a box. It's we're missing out on this opportunity for kind of a longitudinal care with one person. Yeah, there, there's a couple opportunities that I think we're missing out on that, that you allude to. One is we don't have a common electronic health record. You know, Sing Singapore is an example. Um, their health system operates off one health record. So, so that that scenario you just you just suggested of you live in you know Ohio, but you go skiing in Colorado and you break your leg. The, the doc in Colorado is going to have access to your your health record if you're in Singapore because it's one common health record. We don't have that in the United States. There's all different types of health records out there, many of which don't talk to each other. That's one issue. 
The second issue, which is probably a bigger issue, is we are awash in data. You know, as we were talking yesterday, you know, all of us are, are, are Amazon Prime members, as an example. Think about the data that that generates. You know, when, when you're when you're buying things at two o'clock in the morning, you're probably not getting good sleep. You know, when you are buying things that are high calorie, high fat snacks um, from Whole Foods, as an example, or something like that, um, then then your diet's probably not that good. So, but in all that data is out there. How do we bring that data in to to use to to improve our health? Because the amount of time that you actually spend in a doctor's office is well less than 1% of your total life. To sit there and think that that is going to impact the other 99.999% of your life is really ludicrous. You really need to look at it holistically. Um, what, what are your lifestyle things? What are the things that you are doing? And how can we bring that data to bear to improve the overall health of someone? It's what we, it's what we call population health. And it's not just for the individual patient, but it's for the population. You know, What are the factors that are impacting your health? Um, we really missed that opportunity by having fragmented care and, and without having a common electronic health record to capture that data. Well, and what's interesting too is that you, you mentioned Amazon. You're buying all of these things. Perhaps you're shopping at Whole Foods, which is also connected with Amazon, of course. And you know those data are being collected. Uh, so it seems like you know there is an opportunity for someone like Amazon to collect all these data and potentially. Um, I don't know. There's there's probably some upsides and downsides to them having all of those data about you, but they probably going to be trying to sell you some health care. And I know they're starting to venture into that space. Yeah, they are. I mean, you sit there and think about this. Seventy percent of what goes into a primary care clinic doesn't need to see a physician. So, so like, you know, as we were talking about yesterday, we're all prime members. And this is not unique to Amazon. This could be any online online service provider. And maybe as, as part of their prime offering or, 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 or one of the other um, online providers, part of their offering, um, you get, um, for being a member, you, you get, a, a, you know, a tablet where you have on-demand access any time of day or night to a PA or nurse practitioner. So, so here's the scenario. You get up in the morning, you got a little scratchy throat, little, not feeling so great. You come downstairs in your fuzzy bedroom slippers, you make your coffee, you sit at the table and you push the, the on button on your tablet and up comes a PA or a nurse practitioner. Hey, how can I help you today, Mr. Faison? Well, I got a scratchy throat. I'm not feeling kind of achy, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, it sounds like you got the flu. Well, well, you're you're in, a, in an urban market where we're testing drone delivery. I'm going to write you for some, some meds that the drone will deliver to your house within the hour. Please take that, that piece of plastic with the QCR code on it and put it in your front yard so the drone know, knows where to drop the medicine. And, and while you're here, hey, thank you for using our, our free electronic health record that's part of our app. Um, I noticed your cholesterol is a little high. Um, thank you for entering your labs in there. Um, I, you know, if, if you'll get your food through our online shopping um, service, then I'm prepared to offer you a deep discount on fat-free foods um, uh, and, and then make arrangements for you to get a repeat cholesterol test at the drugstore around the corner from where you live in three months. Um, and I also notice you do a lot of shopping at 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, you're probably not sleeping too well. So I'm prepared to offer you at a discount some um, some sleep aids to help you with that and some 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 things that can help you get better sleep. And I also noticed that your weight's been trending up. Um, and again, thank you for entering that into our electronic health record. We've entered into an agreement with Planet Fitness. Let's use that as an example, um, where I will cover the first year of your gym membership for free 
um, and you'll get 50% off future gym memberships. And then I'll give you a 20% discount on future purchases of gym gear and other other things to help you lose weight um, and to stay in shape. Um, all for being a, you know a, one of our select clientele members. Um, so you sit there and think about this for a second. You, you went in there to get some some chloroseptic and some Theraflu, and you came out with a plan for your nutrition, a plan for your cholesterol, and a plan for your fitness and weight. Why would you ever go to see a doctor? Think about that for a second. <laughs> well, yeah, and Amazon just figures out how to giant vacuum all your cash out of your wallet. Yeah. You're like, wow, I'm so healthy, but I, I can't afford anything else. I mean, think about that. <laughs> think about that. So that personal relationship that you build, that's so important for, for knowing when something's not right. What happens to that? You know, and all that information that's in those servers for that online provider, what happens when you get your care the next day from another online provider or from a retail store down the street that's got a that's got a walk-in clinic with it? You know, how is that data shared? Um, so, again, care is at risk to become fragmented. Um, and so what's our plan? And we don't have one. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's such an interesting um, you know, set of uncharted waters for us with, with regard to how care is being delivered. And, you know, one other piece that you mentioned here, another force of change that I think is interesting and very important is, is all about the healthcare workforce, right? And, and, you know, you mentioned how, um, you know, the, the numbers are low, right? In terms of, um, the number of doctors that we need and, and those that are going into the profession. Um, what do you see as some of the main drivers of, you know, fewer people going into medicine and uh, and that type of dilemma? Yeah, I think there's several challenges that we've got um, for the healthcare workforce of the future. You know, people are living longer th than they did before. Um, you know, we, we, we are really looking at how do we take care of the population moving forward? And the people that will do that is the healthcare workforce. But, but again, what you're seeing is the rise of competing careers that don't require long training pipelines, that don't require you going into debt. The average medical student graduates with a quarter of a million dollars in debt. You know, w when I was on active duty in the Navy, we did some studies to look at this because it helped inform our scholarship program. If you're a graduating college senior going to medical school, and let's just use a state school, not a high-end private, but a state school, and you take out just the average amount of student loans to go to medical school, and you go into orthopedics, which which pays pretty well relative to other specialties, um, it's 17 years to pay those loans off. If you go into primary care, so that's pediatrics, internal medicine, and, and family practice or general practice, um, you never pay those loans off. You're in debt your entire professional career. So, so what are we wow. seeing? We, um, we're seeing my son going into another career field that, that also provides him a good career opportunity, a good career trajectory doesn't require a long training pipeline, doesn't require him going into debt. Of those that do go into um, medicine, we're seeing them go into specialties where they can pay their loans off. You know, so, so it's not hard to get, you know, a residency in, in interventional radiology or things like that. It's, it's harder for primary care because they got to pay their loans off. So what you're seeing is some of our graduate education programs are starting to close. So, so every year there are a thousand more graduating medical students than there are residency slots for them to get their follow on training in, in whatever specialty they go into. Um, and again, so what's our plan for this? How do we build that primary care workforce? Because our entire health system is built on primary care right now. You go and see your family doc to Chris's 
example earlier. You know, you go and see your family doctor with whom you've got a relationship, who knows you, who's going to take care of your primary care needs. And then when needed, that doc will refer you to a, a specialist. Our entire system is built on primary care. As we look to the future and drive healthcare into the community, we're not going to send surgeons and radiologists. We're going to send primary care people into the community. So what's our plan for that when people aren't going into primary care because it doesn't pay? Um, and, and so that's the challenge that we've got. The other area that we've got a challenge is in mental health. Um, mental health is also right there with primary care. You never pay your loans off. So, so we are looking at a, at a increasing demand for mental health services in our country because of COVID and uh, things that are going on right now. Um, the Health and Human Services did a study um, just a few years ago. There are thousands of counties, counties without any flavor of mental health provider whatsoever in those counties. So there is a national shortage of mental health providers um, at a time when our need for mental health services is going up. Um, so what's our plan for that? And there are mental health components to most of primary care conditions. Um, what is our plan for that? You know, we, we dealt with that when I was the Surgeon General, uh, and we had folks coming back with post-traumatic stress and things like that. And you want, and, and they want to get on with their lives, but but if they're going to a community where there's no mental health services, what's the plan for that? Uh, and, and so it steps back, and you know, so we we invest, you know, so much money as a country into plans for this, that, or the other thing, but actually taking care of our of ourselves as Americans, what's our plan? You know, I think that's so good. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. There's so many good ideas. Wow, most encounters don't require a primary care physician. Okay, well, maybe the PAs can start picking mm -hmm. up some more like encounters and not having an encounter-driven model, but a uh, outcome care-based model and, and those kinds of things. I, yeah. Yeah, to your point, it, we got to get with it. So we, yeah, the, um, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, yeah, there, there's a couple interesting points. Um, with that, the first is um, we are very, very much a reactionary healthcare system. You you get paid based on encounters. M meanwhile, the, the model like like in ancient China, so so thousands of years ago, um, the physician was paid for every day the patient was well. But when the patient got sick, the physician didn't get paid. So so you sit there and think about that. Hmm, what can we do here? How can we shift to a healthcare system? That um, that focuses on wellness and how can we incent and reimburse for wellness and keeping people healthy? Because again, most of the diseases, today, most of the chronic diseases today, are a result of lifestyle decisions um, that were made. Uh, and, and so, how do we incent and influence those, especially in the late teens, early twenties? Because that's when people are building up their um, their habits for life. Um, so, how do we incent those things? Is is something that that we as a country have got to think about and, and move beyond reactionary health care. The, the other thing I would say is if you look at chronic disease as an example and, and, and the fact that we don't have a plan, you know, I was privileged when I was the Surgeon General to, to have the honor of caring for, for wounded warriors. And, and, you know, our country was so supportive and is still so supportive of our wounded warriors. Um, you, know, you know, because of advances in medical practice and really the heroes on the battlefield are corpsmen, combat medics and folks like that. We had the highest combat survival in history um, in Iraq and Afghanistan. But people who would have died in any previous conflict were going on with their entire lives ahead of them. Um, but but as, as, as we had visiting 
you know, uh, elected officials and others come to visit us, I always ask them three questions. And although these apply to wounded warriors, think of these also for chronic illness, people with chronic conditions. What should the future look like for wounded warriors and their families? What should the future look like for people with diabetes and their families? What is our national strategy to achieve that future? And what's the role of the government? Because if we don't keep people healthy, we will lose the contributions of a generation. Uh, And so what's our plan for that? Uh, And that's why I say we we really have got to come together as a nation uh, and and move beyond fragmented care that's reactionary, focused on when you get sick, into a holistic approach to the patient um, and and keeping them well and move beyond um, the current model. Yeah, some strategy. Somebody needs to get rid of the stinking thinking and put on their strategy cap and start doing stuff. And some of this stuff has, I think, a real moral imperative. And it's about the kind of world we want to live in, not the world of like every corner's an Amazon store with a Starbucks attached. You know, if Amazon hadn't bought Starbucks by then, but to a, <laughs> to a place that is the kind of world we want to live in. Now, the final tectonic plate that you had mentioned here is about the explosion of medical knowledge. And I've been around several startups that are trying to do like physician uh, decision support because I don't think people know this for us that, hmm, patient 34 female presents with blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Let me see if I can catch Fred out in the hall and they, mm-hmm. I'll be right back. And they go out, right? And, they, and doctors try to catch other doctors in the hall. Are they looking it up in the physician de- uh, de- PDR, the physician's desk reference, and try to make a diagnosis? But uh-oh, I can't find Sam in the hall. Oh, well, I guess we'll go with this when I get back and best of luck. Um, we're moving away from that now with technology. Riff on that a little bit, yeah, would you? Yeah, I mean, if you sit there and think about it, you know, when you go to see the doctor, so let's use when you were when you were a child and you went to see the pediatrician. You went to the Department of Pediatrics in some hospital to see your pediatrician, and you assume that regardless of what you had, that pediatrician was going to know how to take care of you, um, and that that what that pediatrician did was going to be best medical practice. Well, both of those. Let's think about this for a second. How you're trained depends on where you're trained and depends on who you trained you. You, you know, so for example, as a, as a child, you have an ear infection, wh- whether you get treated with augmentin, erythromycin, or one of the other drugs, or you get treated with something totally different, it's going to depend on how that doctor was trained to treat ear infections, which is going to depend on who trained him, which creates variability in healthcare. Um, and there's not enough time because you've got to see enough patients to pay your bills to go and, and, and look at best medical practice for every patient that comes to your door. So that's, that's one issue that comes in. The second issue is when you see your doctor, they're going to develop what's called a differential diagnosis for your symptoms. So you come in with belly pain. Let's use that as an example. There's a whole bunch of different causes for belly pain. And your doctor is going to develop, here's a list of potential causes for belly pain. That list is going to be determined by what that doctor's seen. If that doctor has never been to Western Africa, as an example, and you have, but you didn't, you forgot to tell him that, um, then he may not think about uh, a parasitic disease that you might. So your your differential diagnosis is confined to the experience of your doctor. Well, we're at a point right now where there's so much explosion in medical knowledge and technology 
is so advanced and bandwidth is ubiquitously available that, that, that shame on us if we don't figure out how to take decision support that's timely and in real time and drive it to the point of care to give that physician the tools and information he needs to give you a complete diagnosis and to ensure that his treatment, not, not, not necessarily represented on where he trained, but represented on best medical practice available at that point in, in time. Th- that's where we really need to go if we really want to keep people healthy. Yeah, so it sounds like you know there's some great promise that potentially could come with our IT advancements and using that for more decision support to deal with and capitalize on and, and properly exploit this explosion of medical knowledge. And it seems like that's a positive thing. Um, but some of these other uh, big trends in healthcare, right? There are kind of positives. There's also negatives. And you know, if I'm a listener, I'd be thinking, man, I'm a little bit scared about the future of healthcare. Um, you know, are the things that you see as you know positive ways forward or you know, if, if you could wave a magic wand, things that you would do to our healthcare system uh, that potentially could start moving us in the right direction? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the future's bright if we're smart enough to pull these pieces together. I mean, if you sit there and think about it, you know, w- when I was training, you know, a few years ago, that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> um, the <laughs> diseases that were lethal um, are, are now curable. Um, you know, when I was an intern, HIV had not yet been described. Then it became a lethal disease. Now it's a chronic disease that's manageable. Um, as one example, there were cancers. Um, as a pediatrician, there were there were childhood cancers that were lethal that today are curable. Um, you, you know, we have uh, unlocked the genetic code. Um, you know, as an example, think about like 23andMe or Ancestry.com where you can get your genetic test and the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people that have done that. You have an unparalleled genetic repository to start looking at genetic basis of disease and then to start to build treatments to do this. So the future is incredibly bright. Um, the challenge with having a bunch of really great tools around, if you can't organize them into a plan to build the house, the house doesn't get built. So so what does the house of really great healthcare? You know, wonderful health and health is more than just the absence of disease. Um, what does that look like? We really have got to have a plan. Uh, and my worry is, and you mentioned this before, all these startups that are out there developing all these great tools, they're all wonderful. How does it all come together to create a plan? What are our top priorities as a nation? Um, what are the things that we have to focus on first? The, the pandemic really put on the skylight things that, that we knew were there, but, um, but we never really talked about. There really is a difference in healthcare access. There really are social determinants of health. There really are things that have nothing to do with, um, with you know, what's going on inside your body, but what's going on inside your environment um, that impact your health and life, life expectancy. You know, so what's our plan for that? Maybe that's square one. So, so I think what, what I'm saying is there's all these great things that are going on together, great things going on um, in isolation without a plan to unite them with priorities, focus areas, investment strategies, and, and most importantly, commitment um, really are just are just great things that are going on in isolation. Yeah, I think that's important to note that this is the scope of this is so huge. 
as much as I kind of have a soft space in my heart for libertarians, right? Self-organized chaos cannot and has not to this point pulled together a piece. So I sat down in an investor's pitch for one of these. I think it was called Doctor's Decisions. It, it's changed its name several times. And it's like, hey, we're trying to raise X amount of dollars. Are you in? And I was like, gee, this seems like more like a NIH or Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to do and make this free everywhere with like the the Stanford or like the top medical, you know, Cleveland Clinic weighing in and standardizing the best practice for care. But imagine if every piece of this healthcare system from the admittance, oh, look, we have ways that people pay their copay before they even darken your door. Oh, every little piece gets chopped up into a little startup. You're not going to get, it's impossible to get the kind of holistic soups to nuts kind of plan that you're going to need to sort this. And the other thing that's going on, you mentioned, you mentioned the little startups. There's some amazing inventions and innovations and, and companies out there that are doing incredible work that, that, that don't know how to break into the market, that, that don't know how to come to, to folks' attention. So it makes it even more challenging to say, okay, let's step back and say, what, what problem are we solving? What are the priorities that we're solving or by which we're going to solve that, that problem? And then who's out there that can help us? And, and there's so many great innovators out there that just can't break through, come to visibility, don't know how the system operates, that, that really part of our solution has got to be how do we empower innovators, bring them to visibility and make them part of the greater whole? Um, there are just just like say, not all great innovations come come from companies that are huge, that are very established in the market. Um, there, there are amazing um, discoveries and things going on in those companies, to be sure. But there are other smaller companies that, that really, if we can bring them to light and make that part of a coordinated, cohesive whole, um, and help those companies succeed and bring their their solutions to to uh, to help others. Really, that that would be amazing. This is great. So you know, I think that there's uh, certainly some promise here, and and certainly some ways, and perhaps we can can potentially come together and address some of these challenges in a coherent way. What I'd like to shift us to talk about a little bit now is. Um, the topic of managing health emergencies at a large scale. Now, you're in a unique position to comment on this um, for a variety of reasons. One being that, you know, right after you retired from the Navy, you came to Cleveland State University and then COVID hit us. And uh, so then you were you were within striking distance of, hey, you're 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 going to be uh, running our, our uh, COVID response at the university and certainly did a lot for um, other higher education institutions and and collaborating there. Uh, but then obviously, as the 38th Surgeon General of the Navy, um, you were involved in a number of large scale uh, types of uh, responses there. So I'm I'm wondering, you know, kind of what you've learned from that, or if you could comment on just that that topic of, of how do you manage these emergencies at a large scale? Maybe we could start with pandemics and kind of your thoughts there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just to go back a little bit of what we talked about earlier, you know, we've, we've had pandemics since antiquity. You know, the bubonic plague has been described since uh, since ancient Greece. Um, and, and so we've had these and they all behave the same way. They all start out in one area. Usually it's a zoonotic transmission from a, from an animal to a human. Then there are areas where, where that occurs more frequently than others. You can predict that. I'm going to come back to predictive analytics. Um, and then they follow the trade routes. The bubonic plague um, in, in medieval um, medieval times did exactly that. They started in the trading posts of Central Asia, 
and, and migrated to to Europe via the trading trading ports of entry in Italy and a couple other places, and then they spread by roads. The, the exact same thing happened with COVID. Um, they started, um, you know, in in a uh, um, in one part of the world. They followed the airline routes. They came into the United States via ports of entry, New York, Seattle, a couple others, and then they followed to the hubs, and then ultimately went from there. Well, if you think about that for a second, the difference is how fast it happened, as we talked about earlier. Five years to get from Italy to England in the Middle Ages with bubonic plague. Less than 24 hours to get from China to the United States or anywhere in the world for that. So your reaction time is much, much less. What does that mean? You have to, number one, have a high index of suspicion um, that uh, there's going to be an outbreak. Things that might not seem important at the time, especially in areas of high risk for zoonotic transmission, like these wild animal markets and things like that. Um, when you start to see people starting to get sick very early on, you have to have a high index of suspicion for that. And, and then you have to realize these are going to go by trade routes um, and, and be able to manage um, the spread. And then from that, since you know that they're going to go by trade routes, you can do predictive analytics. So, so you know that if it comes in to a port of entry, likely it's going to spread by the airline routes to hubs. So, so you know that the next place is going to be that's going to be an outbreak is going to be a hub. So that gives you the opportunity to surge medical equipment and personnel to that hub before the before the infection shows up. What happened, and I think is a lesson learned from COVID, is we were reactionary. You know, we were, you know, short on ventilators and stuff because they were spread all over. But but if you use predictive analytics and you understand how, how pandemics go, you can predict that stuff and then have that stuff prepositioned and ready to go. You, you, you can have a high index of suspicion um, to be able to know that things are starting, control access, preposition material and personnel at the hubs. And you can better manage those things. That I think that's one thing I've learned, uh, and I've I've been blessed to be be not only in, in, involved in the COVID response, but with the Zika response. Um, you know, the Navy did a lot of the testing for the Southern United States to support the CDC. With the Ebola response in Western Africa, they, they all respond the exact same way. The second thing that I learned, and, and I think this is going to be a big lesson learned for us out of COVID is the criticality of, of addressing two things. N number one is transparency of information. Um, and, and then from that fear, um, you know, at, at what drives people's behavior and choices in pandemics is fear. Um, and, and you've got to be able to address that. Uh, and you've got to be able to, to reassure people. And you do that by being transparent. You do that by not politicizing things. You do that but by having a trusted organization that, that relies on science to be able to um, to be able to, to advise, inform and, and ultimately guide that not only um, helps you get over it, but it also creates trust, which helps allay fear. I, I think we had opportunities to have done that a little bit better. Every pandemic I've been involved in, um, fear has been a major component. Um, and if you don't address it, with information and education, and basically say, and these people are going to help guide us through this um, to create confidence and trust, it really turns out to be much harder. And that's exactly what we saw.
Yeah. Were there any moments like as, you know, during the past year and a half or so that as things were unfolding where you were, you were thinking, oh, we, you know, we should be doing this instead of this or, or things that maybe you learned when you were dealing with, uh, you know, Zika or Ebola um, that perhaps, you know, some of those lessons that weren't used, anything that you saw there? Yeah, I think, I, I think the thing that was most striking to me when, when I look at, um, you know, what happened with Zika, SARS, Ebola, admittedly, not, those were not as widespread. Um, but, but what I saw with this was actually, if you read history, somewhat similar, but perhaps not as pervasive in the 1919 flu pandemic was um, an infectious disease, a public health issue became politicized. Um, that, that's exactly what we saw. And, and unfortunately, and there, and there were reasons for that. But unfortunately, it, it, it made it harder to build trust. It undermined trust in, in, in institutions that really were put in place and existed to, to build trust, to help inform um, you know, how we respond, to help save lives. That, that trust was eroded. Messaging um, with, with the instant, instant messaging cycle that we now saw on the Internet and with the TV today, you know, we're not in a 24-hour news cycle. We're in an instantaneous news cycle now uh, with different messaging created a cacophony of confusion that, that I think really worked against us um, and, and, and really undermined trust for that and, and, and created, if you will, a, a, an environment where people with different agendas um, who, who perhaps were, were ill-informed um, or, or perhaps were well-informed but chose not to act on it really started um, creating a, a, uh, an environment of confusion. And I think that worked against us. I never saw that in previous pandemics. Yeah, you know, one thing that was interesting is that, uh, you know, early on, I actually I think it was maybe like last May or, or so, in, you know, May 2020, um, perhaps I'll have to go back and check the date. But, you know, we actually on this podcast talked about uh, the psychology of crisis communication yeah. and the importance of, uh, you know, being upfront with what you know, what you don't know, uh, you know, putting experts out in front. And uh, it, it was just interesting because, you know, from our estimation, it seemed like there were probably some some things that could have been done differently. And um, when I look forward to the future, you know, big thing that I wonder, too, is, OK, we've been through this pandemic. Um, are we going to do it better in the future? Because it's not a question of if another pandemic happens. It's really a question of when. And uh, do you think that we're learning lessons um, along the way? I hope so. I hope so. There's a plenty, like say, there's a lot of lessons learned from this, you know, about, about, you know, there really are differences in outcomes and survival because of social disparities um, and different demographic groups. We got to deal with that um, because there were certain groups that went into this pandemic in poorer health. And, and so no surprise, they had poorer outcomes. Um, so, so we ought to be able to deal with that. Um, the the uh, the importance of transparency and information flow in, in a rapid news cycle. We have to be able to deal with that. The, the criticality of building trust. Um, we've got to be able to deal with that. And, and if you think about it, um, building trust involves answering just some core questions for people. I think we missed that opportunity. You know, if, if you're if you're in a pandemic, and we all were, what are the questions you've got? Am I going to get it? You know, you got to be able to answer that. And here's how you prevent you don't get it. You know, am I going to die? You know, and, and answer that. And here's what we're doing about that. And here's here's what what we're bringing to bear. Is my family going to get it? 
You know, here's what we can talk about that with different demographic groups. Um, are they going to die? Um, and when is it going to get over? Um, you know, and, and so communications has got to be built around what questions do people have for this? And I, I think we had a, have an opportunity to look at how we do strategic communications, to look at how we might raise the health of everyone so that people don't enter pandemics in poorer health and therefore at risk for poorer outcomes. And at the same time, our response using predictive analytics, big data, um, to be better prepared and surge equipment and personnel to, to areas of need before they become areas of need, I think present all, op- all, all opportunities for us. Our, our challenge is we, we as a country tend to operate on a four-year cycle based on the elections. Um, and, and so my worry is that we will go on to the next crisis. Um, you, you know, I, and why do I say that? You know, and I'll use, I'll use um, you know, our, our, our wounded warriors as an example. You know, during OAF and OEF, um, there was amazing, amazing support um, in commercials and documentaries about wounded warriors. Um, and and the, the nation was just incredibly grateful. But, but now we're starting to see that drift from the national stage. Well, these, these folks are still around. They, they are arguably the best of our generation because they are the less than 1% of our nation that will wear the uniform, wear the cloth of our nation and volunteer and sacrifice and serve. Um, and yet we haven't answered those basic questions of what should the future look like for them? What's our national plan to, to achieve that future? And what's the role of the government? We haven't answered those questions. But, but now we're talking about a post-pandemic world. Pretty soon we'll be on to something else. So, so our, the news cycle means our attention span is short. So, so that's working against us. Um, so, so again, I, the extent to which we can leverage these lessons learned, put politics aside, have an attention span to be able to deal with these lessons learned, I think will position us well. And your point's well taken, Ben. This is not the last pandemic. I mean, viruses are doing what viruses do. They mutate. They, uh, you know, th- there will be other zoonotic transmissions because we've had these throughout our history. Um, this will not be the last. You know, another thing that I'm wondering is, you know, you've been kind of in, in this position of being the senior medical person um, at, at the helm during a variety of, of these types of things, either when you were, uh, you know, in, on active duty with the Navy and certainly, you know, helping us at Cleveland State University with with our COVID response. Um, what were maybe some things, and, and I'm sure there are lots of things that happened in any of those circumstances that were unexpected and you had to deal with those types of things. Um, what were some of the factors, though, that you think, uh, you know, enabled success or at least were were helpful or maybe approaches that you took that, what were some of the things that you did that worked um, in terms of managing and leading in those environments? Well, I, I think probably the most important thing was it was a team effort. Nobody does this alone. Um, you know, Cleveland State is is an amazing institution. Um, as you know, they, they um, Urban Research University focuses on educating, um, you know, folks from urban, many disadvantaged, underserved um, populations. Those students, uh, many first generation college, um, many um, are holding down jobs to be able to go to college because of the breadwinners for their families, come from very, very um, uh, impoverished backgrounds. Um, it's an amazing, amazing university. Um, and the faculty and staff there are focused on, on, on the mission, which is basically providing our students with, with a future that is bright and full of promise that, that perhaps they wouldn't otherwise have. 
Um, and, and, and then you get the pandemic that hit. Um, I was I was amazed by how well the team came together and put in place what we call the seven layers of protection um, to give folks. The faculty, over a period of less than 10 days, took the entire curriculum, this is over 1,200 courses, and converted it all online. And, and there were about 300 or so students that, that, who, that came from backgrounds that couldn't afford um, laptops to do remote services, couldn't afford internet access. And, and, and so um, the community came together um, and got them laptops, and the university invested in, um, in hotspots for them. We had uh, um, about 20 or so students that we couldn't send home because they would have gone to chaotic social environments that would, that would not have been safe. And so the team kept the dorms open for them, um, and we took care of them throughout the pandemic. So, so what I saw was what I think makes America great, teamwork. Um, and, and then on a state level, you know, Ohio was was perhaps the only state where all the public universities came together and said, hey, hey, listen, regardless of where one of our students, one of our, our sons or daughters goes, it ought to be the, the same and it ought to be on best practices. And all the public universities and colleges in Ohio coordinated their response. In Cleveland State, we were we were privileged to lead that effort. Um, but I saw that I saw. I saw people coming together to help others. And I think that was kind of the secret sauce. And then the other thing I saw was people took it seriously. So we were blessed. We had one of the lowest infection rates among urban universities in the United States. And we had no outbreaks. We did, we, um, we had not, none of the things that saw because people took it seriously. So I think that was, was two big lessons for me. Number one, it was a team effort. Number two, people were, were caring about others to make sure they were taken care of. Uh, and number three, there was a focus on doing right for everybody, not just for themselves. Yeah. So let me ask you about that, because a lot of this, you know, CDC has whole binders and people are practiced on what to do. This was a case of not about us not knowing what to do. It's getting everybody on the same sheet of music and actually doing the stuff we know to do. Right. And then maybe, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants and iterating from there. One of the disturbing things that would come up is there's always be some numbskull doctor somewhere saying stuff like, there's alien DNA in the vaccine. It's so obtuse, you can't wrap your mind around it. And then there's, you know, some more insidious ones where people, I don't know, they just want to be Twitter famous. Should there be some kind of public censure for, because I know, so I come out of an accounting background. I can't just say, yep, the books look good, right? And give an unqualified opinion if I haven't done the audit, right? Like there's a professional standard of conduct when it comes to communicating about what's going on. Is there something like that for doctors? Should there be? I mean, what do we do yeah. with jack wagon doctors? Yeah, that's a great question. One of, one of the amazing treasures of being an American is freedom of speech. The, the cost of freedom of speech is everybody gets to speak. Um, and, and just because you're a doctor doesn't mean you're immune from um, <laughs> either mental illness. Right, but or, there's got to be you know, something you're... from a professional. <laughs> you're speaking as a doctor, not a lay person, right? Yeah. There, surely there has to be some kind of professional censure there. Well, well, there's there's freedom of speech. Um, you, you know, there, there's two parties to this. One, one is the person actually doing the speaking. And again, everybody's got everybody's got a right to their opinion. Um, and, and then there's the people that give them a stage by which to share that opinion. Um, and, and, and quite frankly, we rely on those people 
Yeah, to to make sure that that stage, the people on that stage, you know, are credible, um, are are responsible, and, and really are reflective of. Again, for me, I'm a very big believer in the science. Are reflective of the science and the data. Um, when when we have folks that give the stage to people who, who perhaps are touting something that that we know is just not true or stuff because they're looking for ratings or things like that, th- then I think we have to ask ourselves, you know, as a nation, um, is that ethical? Is that moral? You know, uh, you know, how does that help Americans? Uh, and I've got my own personal feelings on that, but uh, but I think it's a two way street of of you know everybody's got a right to say speak their mind, um, but not everybody has a right to be on the stage to speak that mind to a broad audience. So so how do we manage that stage? Yeah. So let me let me push back on that a little bit, Doctor yeah. Admiral. Um, so <laughs> so right. We hey we do it live at the Indigo Podcast. Yeah. So. We have a term for that, and it's called deplatforming. But if you if you are a journalist or a media company, how are you going to be able to call strikes and fouls on a medical professional? That's why I'm thinking I'm I'm still lean towards not not that somebody say, "Hey, I'm concerned about this," or maybe early some docs were like, "Well, we got nothing, so we'll go with hydrochloroquine." Yeah. But what we got nothing, we're trying here, right? You know, when they're in those emergent places, but when somebody comes out and says something that is just summarily false by any kind of standard of care, you don't support any kind of professional censure from like, I don't know, some how you guys get credentialed or something. Yeah, it, 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 it's difficult to censure someone in a country that values and treasures and, and have people that have died for freedom of speech. You know, uh, what I would say is, you know, uh, most of the major, major um, organizations that maintain these stages, if you will, have got medical expertise and medical advisors. Um, I would hope that they are using them. So, so, so when, when you get somebody that says, hey, I want to I get on TV, as an example, and talk about how the vaccine has got alien DNA in it, I, I would hope that TV producer is calling their medical advisor uh, and saying, hey, hey, doc, what do you think about this? Um, and, and there is a conversation. Well, I mean, the problem is, is they can go to Twitter, right? They could just yeah. go straight to the people. Yeah. And so I don't know how. Well, okay. But we have <laughs> we have had that. We have had that since antiquity. You know, perfectly. Again, I, I'm a student of history. If you look at the bubonic plague in, Medi- in the medieval Europe, you know, they burned people at the stake. Because they thought they were poisoning wells, they thought that the well poisoning was um, was a cause of the bubonic plague. In, in one of the towns in one of the countries in Germany, um, you know, all the people of the Jewish faith were murdered because they thought they were they were were causing the plague. Um, there there were people that were doing all sorts of things. Um, you're always going to have those people. So 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 you can you can choose to say, okay, um, you know, we're going to censure them. But probably might not be effective, or you can say, but but let's make sure if they do get the stage, it's balanced. Let's make sure that we're providing opportunity for those that are credible to to provide the same message or to provide a message that that perhaps is more reasonable, more reflective of the science and of the data. Um, I think we have opportunities there. Yeah. So, and just to clarify for our listeners, I'm saying censure, not censor. 
So like, you know, maybe there's a public statement. Yes, he's a licensed medical doctor, but the American Society of Physicians thinks he's a jack wagon medical doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, there's a, the, the medical profession. Um, it, uh, I, I'm sure some of those people that have spoken like that are going to going to have it find it very hard to get referrals from other from their colleagues uh, and stuff. So, you know, I mean, I think I, I think there are things that that the medical profession um, it does. I mean, I, I don't know this to be true, but but I, I would say, um, you know, I, I'm reluctant to say let's let's censure or or impede freedom of speech. I, I think a more successful route would be let's make sure people are informed with the facts. And, and that gets more to transparency, because if people are armed with the facts, then when somebody shows up saying, hey, there's alien DNA in the vaccine, it's a lot harder to make that case. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I think would be a, a recommendation really for everyone is that basically everyone should be listening to the Indigo podcast because we are very careful in who we allow on here. <laughs> and we make sure that we have evidence based professionals who who aren't going to say crazy things. So only the people Bill Gates tells me to put on the show get on the show. <laughs> there you go. You know, so at, th this has been a fascinating conversation as we start to kind of, uh, you know, come into the home stretch here a little bit. I We've mentioned a couple of times that you were the 38th Surgeon General of the U.S. Navy, and I think it would be uh, nice for our listeners for you just to explain a little bit about what is that job anyway? And, you know, what were some of the things you you took away from that, um, you know, lessons learned or things that, that might be helpful for other people out there? Yeah, thanks very much for that question, Ben. So, so the Surgeon General of the Navy, and each of the services has one, is the CEO, the chief executive officer for Navy and Marine Corps medicine. So, so for the Navy and Marine Corps, that's 67,000 men and women pretty much in every time zone in, every, in about 128 medical centers, hospitals, and clinics, um, medical departments in every unit and on every ship, um, research labs around the world, graduate education programs, caring for about 2.6 to 2.8 million people um, with a budget of about nine, nine to $12 billion. Um, and, and our job is to safeguard and preserve the health of the fighting force and take care of their families, retirees, and others, train folks who will go forward in harm's way to save lives, um, and be prepared to respond. You know, our nation expects our military to fight tonight to defend our freedom. If you're going to fight tonight, you have to be prepared to save lives tonight. And, and, and so the Surgeon General, as the CEO of that health, that global multi-billion dollar large healthcare enterprise, is responsible for keeping people healthy, being prepared to save lives tonight, managing healthcare so that you know, is best practice and things like that. Everybody that joins our military, and as I shared with you earlier, today less than one percent of our of our nation will volunteer and sacrifice and serve in uniform to protect and defend us. Less than one percent. And to every one of them, we make a commitment to them and to their families that we will provide them the best care our nation can offer, and one day return them home safely with the grateful thanks of our nation. Um, the Surgeon General is responsible for ensuring that that health system is run to be able to do that. Um, and, and so that's kind of what they do. So 
you know, you manage all the things that a CEO would manage of a major healthcare system, a global healthcare system. Um, and I was privileged and honored to do that. I will tell you, I, I have never been so proud to be an American than when I would go out and, and you know, I, I was privileged to command in, in a combat theater for a year. I ran a combat hospital and things like that. When I see these young men and women who, who you know, are not in it for themselves, they're not in it for fame or glory, and they're certainly not in it for the money, um, but they're in it because they want to help and they want to make a difference. Um, I have no worries about the future of our country when I look at the men and women who are serving in our military today. Um, so I, you know, that that's kind of I, I think the big, the big um, uh, thing that I learned from that. The, the other thing I learned is the importance of strategy, and we talked a little bit about this earlier. You, you know, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, as I shared earlier, we had the highest combat survival in history. If you had a survivable injury, and there are some injuries that are just not survivable. But, but if you had a survivable injury um, on the battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan, you had a 97% chance of survival. That's the highest on record in history. Um, and again, routinely, men and women who would have died in any previous conflict were being saved and were coming home um, with their entire lives ahead of them. Um, we, we are only one of just a few countries that maintain a standing medical force to be able to get out the door quickly and save lives tonight to be able to do that. Um, and, and, and our country benefited from that because of all these wounded warriors that survive and will now go on to contribute to our nation through the rest of their lives. But it's not cheap. We, we came home to a country that didn't understand the cost of military health care. And so there was, a, there was um, while I was the Surgeon General, uh, undertaken the most expansive reform of military health care that we've seen in over 50 years with the intent of trying to save some money. As, as the military looks ahead to, to, a, to a global stage that is far from secure with the rise of, um, you know, resurgent Russia, China, some of these other um, potential adversaries, then, then we need to be able to look at investing in weapon systems, recapitalizing ships and things like that. So there was a great deal of focus on the cost of healthcare care um, and, and trying to find efficiencies, um, and be able to do things to find savings to plow back into weapon systems and things like that. Um, so so all that's all fine, except it's important to have a strategy for that. And so I spent a great deal of my time up on Capitol Hill and, and talking to our elected officials and, and, and leaders inside the Pentagon. Um, hey, um, what problem are we solving? What does success look like? You know, and what are those things that are critical for combat survival in the future that we must make sure that we preserve. Um, and, and, and it's hard to answer those questions. I'll just say the, the answers I got um, when I did get answers um, caused me to re realize the importance of having a strategy because, you know, every mom and dad in America whose son or daughter is serving in our military today expects that high combat survival. And we want to deliver that. So, so as we as we shift focus from Iraq and Afghanistan, where we weren't fighting peer adversaries to, you know, potential peer adversaries in very different theaters where we may not have some of the advantages that we had before. What do we need to preserve? What does this health system need to look like and what needs to be preserved to ensure that high combat survival that we can continue to make good on that trust? that's placed in our hands to provide the best care our nation can offer and every opportunity for combat survival. I learned the importance of asking those tough questions 
because because as a leader, you know, who's going to ask those questions if you're not willing to do that? You know, you, you got to have the courage of your convictions, be willing to tell truth to power and, and be able to ask those tough questions, because every service member, every mom and dad is depending on you to do that. And those are important questions that we don't want to be answering when we're going out the door to fight a war. We want we have a window of opportunity now. Again, we've had wars since antiquity. We have a window of opportunity to get that right and make sure that health system is well positioned for combat survival in the future. Um, and so I learned the importance of strategy with that. So uh, my takeaway, I have never been so proud to be an American. Uh, when I see the men and women that are serving in our military today, do we have challenges ahead on a global world stage? Absolutely, we do. Um, are, are we going to be expected to get out the door tonight to defend our freedom and save lives? Absolutely, we are. Um, do we need to make sure that we are well prepared to continue to honor that trust that we have honored every day since the founding of our nation to do all in our power to safeguard the health and, pres and preserve the lives of those that will wear the cloth of our nation? Absolutely. We, that trust will not change. We have to make sure that we're prepared to answer it. You know, I'm so glad you talk about these things because I always get this sentiment from civilians that we're a bunch of automatons that don't think, that don't have, even at the senior level, I mean, I've seen general staff yell at each other on disagreements, right? Like, we have different backgrounds. We are a crosscut of our nation's everything, ideas, political affiliations, stinking thinking, the whole bit. And I got to say, you should join the military. And, and, and Forrest, I want you to set, if you were to tell somebody who's thinking about maybe joining the military, because guys, you can be creative and have leadership potential to do, like he was global leader in healthcare, have a fun time, hard time fighting your way up to that on the civilian side. You'll at least get an at-bat in the military. Um, but why would you tell somebody it's a good idea or not to join the military at this point? So, so I do a fair amount of mentoring, mentoring for, for students at CSU and, and elsewhere. And I ask them two questions. N number one, well, I tell them two things. Number one, what's the purpose of your life? Answer that question first. Um, and then the second is, um, you know, I tell them where you think you're going to end up is not where you're going to end up. But always be looking for how can you best answer the question, you know, what's the purpose of your life? So I grew up in Rocky River outside Cleveland, um, and I went away to college um, at Wake Forest. Um, and I went there with the intention of becoming a minister because for me, the purpose of life is helping people. And I thought that'd be a pretty cool way to do that. You know, you get to wear some cool clothes once a week, um, a lot of free food. It's not too strenuous. And I thought you only needed to know one book, you know, so I'm in. Um, and, and when I was there, um, is when the steel industry had its challenges and my dad um, lost his job and got transferred uh, to another job down in Washington, D.C. And I couldn't afford to go to college at Wake Forest. So I got a summer job in this brand new medical school the military was building called the Uniformed Services University as a lab assistant, cleaning test tubes and take care of lab rats, stuff like that. But that's how I paid for college. But I also learned about medicine. And I learned that, hey, medicine's a pretty cool way to, um, uh, to help people. And uh, maybe I'll be a doctor. Um, and I couldn't afford to go to medical school, so I applied to, to the military medical school, and I got in. Um, and and I, you know, I realized that hey, here's a career where you're part of something greater than yourself. Um, 
You're not in it for the money. You're working with people who are not in it for the money. You're working for people that are defending our freedom um, and, and really um, allowing us to ensure that the world that we leave our children is better than the world that was left to us. Um, and, and I was, I was pretty, I was pretty excited about that, you know, and I got to see some amazing things. I got to help people in ways that I could never have helped them before, you know, from, from, uh, you know, helping out with that, with the, uh, response to the Haiti earthquake, to the Fukushima, um, disaster, uh, to the Zika response at Ebola, um, you know, on, on ways that I could never have imagined when I was growing up as a high school student in Rocky River. But again, I, I go back to, Take the time to answer for yourself, what, what's the purpose of your life? And, and then as you go through life, where you end up is not going to be where you thought you're going to end up. When I was a high school student in Rocky River, I had no idea I was going to be in the Navy. The Surgeon General was some guy on a cigarette carton. Um, and, and I mean, I had no idea I was going to do that, um, much less that I was going to come back to Cleveland State to help these amazing young, young students, um, you know, with their futures. Um, but, but what I did learn was at each point along the way, does, does what I'm about to do help me with the purpose of my life? And that's what I tell people. And, and for me, the military was an amazing way to be part of something greater than yourself, serve your country, and ensure that the world that we pass on to our children will be better than the world that was passed to us. Well, Admiral, it has been an absolute pleasure having you here on the Indigo Podcast. Oh, uh, well, Ben, thank you so much for the honor and privilege. I'll tell you, the, the honor is all mine. And, and I've so enjoyed talking to both you and Chris. This has been great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.